0: Go back and listen to this song. You got the intro thing. Eventually the music comes in. Now look at the album cover.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That moment is them jumping (laughs) off, and that's all I
0: could get. I couldn't get that out of my head every time I listened to this.
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and general complainers get together to discuss albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to give some deep dives on individual tracks, some background on the artist and the production of the album, and at the very end, go around the horn and vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. We are going to be listening to an album this week that I got to tell you, I was not super excited to listen to. It is by the, I guess, seminal rock band Kiss. It is the 1976 album Destroyer. Now, before we hop around and do our introductions and give our tweet length reviews and tell you how our week went, we are going to dive in and listen to a little bit of the opening track off of the March 15th, 1976 release. It is the song Detroit Rock City. All right, all right. Thank you all for listening to that. Now, I am going to go ahead and by way of introduction, throw it around the room to our participants here. Adam, I'm going to go to you first. Tell me how your week went in a tweet length review. Hey, everybody. This is
0: Adam. And my quick tweet is that it's the New York Dolls, except instead of grabbing the makeup bags labeled Drag Show, they accidentally grabbed the ones labeled Dumbest Gimmick
2: Ever. (laughs) Oh, okay adam i knew you were going to come in hot on this one i am glad you're sticking true to form let's throw it over next to marty
1: hey thanks for having me on again here's my uh tweet length word salad if you ever wondered how american rock music made the strange transition from jimi hendrix to motley Crue, look no further than the band kiss <laughs> dude that's awesome uh, hey i'm not done Borrowing Bowie's glam sensibility, along with Ronald McDonald's fast food marketability, (laughs) the band Kiss paved the way for other clown bands like Guar and Insane Clown Posse. And the music in the album Destroyer set the stage for classic 80s hairspray rock bands like Rat, Cinderella, Poison, Skid Row, and Twisted Sister. Oh, man.
2: Wow. That is not a good legacy to be a part of, I'm being honest. Here. Like, without Kiss, there's no docking, and then where are we? You
3: know? <laughs> I might as well kill myself.
2: All righty, Rob, let's hear it.
3: I got to tell you, this is Rob, and there's so much I want to get into in both of those tweets, so I'm excited for this conversation. That's usually a good sign. But my tweet length review is about Kiss's destroyer. Brilliant, if annoying, marketing idea meets dumbed-down, joyless arena rock. Also, did you guys know they wear makeup on stage?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Alrighty, and this is Tom. I will be guiding us through this journey into Destroyer, my tweet-length review. You know, at the beginning of the week, I thought KISS was a bunch of mediocre musicians who care more about the way they look than the quality of the relatively bland party music that bloats their albums. And I still think that. But I have found a new appreciation for them after digging into them this week. Let's cut it real quick. We're going to go to general impressions. I want to get everybody's sort of general impression of the week. I'm going to start this conversation out and say that I think the big moment for me was when when I realized that KISS is an act. They are not a band. And I think that is an important distinction. They are not music first. They are show first. And... You can tell on their album that they're not music first. That is not a compliment.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I was excited to dive in just because clearly they're a seminal band. They're a band you've heard of and seen images of your entire life. But other than their massive hit, which is not on this record, Rock and Roll All Night or Party Every Day, whatever the f- it's called, I I don't think I'd ever heard a note of Kiss's music. And so I really truly was curious because clearly they've, they've left a mark. I just want to say right off the bat to go against a little bit of what was said in the tweet length reviews. I don't have a problem with the marketing concept. It's dumb and we can pick it apart, but it clearly worked very, very, very well. I think I read something that Gene Simmons is like worth $300 million today. It's crazy, right? And. Uh, Astute listeners of the podcast might also know that I have a little soft spot for some of that 80s rock that was much maligned in our our tweet-length reviews. As it turns out, I actually listened to a Dockin' record recently for the first time, and that guitar player shreds, dude.
0: Yes! I'm going to add an addendum to Tom's initial thought that they're an act. I'm going to say that they're a corporation, and this is exactly what I was expecting. I mean, like, right on the money of what I... Similar to to Rob, I had never heard a note other than the Big Party All Night song. And yeah, this was right in line with what I expected. I was actually a little disappointed in the mix, just getting into a little bit of the weeds there.
3: Totally agree. I I wanted them to be more evil and less glam. I don't know why I had that in my head. I thought they were going to be harder. And this is kind of just off-the-shelf, prefabricated 70s rock music. And then there's some big swings and huge misses when it comes to production <laughs> and
1: instrument playing. So yeah, I have, I have a little bit different of a take, even though I wasn't super looking forward to this album because I, I kind of just thought they sucked, you know, I, again, like you guys, I, I didn't really listen to any of their music. I had no clue. I, you know, I have a friend who's toured with them as a sound playback engineer. And, you know, I know a little bit about them and I, they are quite a corporation, like Adam said, It's so they, they, they have a huge following, they sell out arenas still, and they're a thousand years old. <laughs> but I kind of, uh, I kind of got into the songs. You know, one thing I notice is that is that there's there, most of the songs like kind of are pervy, you know, about how all the women want the band. You know, to, you know, they're kind of self-aggrandizing, which I, I think can be done right if it's funny. And I think some of these songs kind of are funny. And I'm going to disagree. I, I think uh, about the production. I, th- I think that you know, in the '70s. You know, they finally figured out how to get a good, like, anthem rock sound out of a band. You know, you could take this album and play it in a stadium, and it sounds okay.
2: There was no low end on this album. Like, where was the low end? You have a famously egomaniacal bass player slash singer slash front and I guess they're all kind of front men. Like, Paul Stanley's a front man. Gene Simmons is also a front man. They have front men in this band. But the bass was really tinny. And it didn't have a lot of that low end rumble that I was hoping for, and that I think actually kind of plays better in a large studio, a large uh, setting to fill out the sound. Like at times, the sound of the band was a little hollow. And I think that bass does a lot to carry through this kind of low bed that the rest of the music sits on. And I didn't feel like it had that. I was expecting a lot more bass.
1: There's so much other stuff going on, though. There's like 12 layers of vocals. There's like bells and glockenspiels and all kinds of stuff going on. But here's the problem. I think we're talking about different
3: songs. We're going to get into it on the specific songs, because in my opinion, this is a story of at least two or three albums of different genres almost. And they have a lane. And when they're in the right lane, I think the production shines and it sounds good in the studio. But there's other songs where either they overstep their bounds in terms of songwriting or singing or all of the above, or it just doesn't match the energy. I want to get this out of the way right now because I went and listened to some of the live recordings because they're famous for having these two big live records. They're both called a live live one and a live two. I don't know if you guys listen to any of them, but I thought immediately some of the songs that fell really flat to me on this record came alive live. And that was heartening, but also disappointing given how much they talked about the The production and the big producer they worked with on this record
2: let's talk a little bit about the background of the band leading up to that but before we do that i want to dive into again my favorite segment on this entire podcast we're going to do kiss by the numbers now we're not going to dive into the totality of their sales we're not going to do the again the massive corporation that's still selling out arenas we're going to talk a little bit more about some smaller numbers here And we're going to start off with the number 10, which is the number of people that attended the first Kiss performance in 1973. (laughs) They talk about that a lot. Apparently, their manager quit like right before the show. And i just like, you guys are never going fucking anywhere. This is ridiculous. And they played to 10 people.
1: Were they dressing up at that point?
2: They were not dressing up the way that they are now. But they were still putting on a stage show. And we'll we'll get into that a little bit. The next number is the number 7. Which is the total number of ears of members in KISS. Oh, man. (laughs) Because, (laughs) well, Paul Stanley was born with microtia, which is a malformed ear. And so one of his ears was basically just didn't exist. It was like kind of a weird, tiny little half-formed baby ear. And I don't say this to make fun of Paul Stanley. I actually say this to make a specific point, which is that he was bullied mercilessly growing up for having a malformed ear. You know, kids are just fucking terrible people. And so anything that is different, they can, you know, they see as a weakness and they attack that. But music can give you an identity. Music is the thing that you can use to overcome something that might, in other circumstances, make you powerfully uncool and be the out person. It gives you an identity, and it gives you something to, uh, to be able to hang your hat on and say, well, at least I'm fucking interesting. At least I play music. You know, At least I have this going on. Well, we know he wasn't hanging his hat on his ear. Oh, God know God damn it.
1: <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that the, they had 13 testicles between them. Ace freely, you know. He had five decimals. <laughs> so
2: the next number we're going to talk about is the number six, which is the grade that Gene Simmons taught before he became a rock star. He was a sixth what? grade teacher in Spanish Harlem. Which, no way. Which, yeah, I mean, imagine him as your teacher. We'll talk a little bit more about why Gene Simmons as your teacher will be a little bit weird, uh, and it's maybe not for the reasons you think. We're going to go on to the next number is zero, which is the number of times that Gene Simmons claims to have ever drank, smoked, or done drugs in his entire life.
3: Well, that explains why I don't like him. <laughs> 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 wow.
0: And that Zappa crowd, right? Well, Zappa chain-smoked. Oh, okay, there you go. All right.
2: And died of cancer. <laughs> I mean, it was like what pancreatic cancer, though. It was different. Different cancer. But, I mean, this is also, this is like fucking cokiest of the cokes mid 70s -70s arena rock rock star rock star jeez and peter chris famously had like a huge cocaine problem and was fired from the band because he was going through like coke psychosis during shows sometimes and uh but apparently gene simmons said he was just always straight and narrow no drinking no smoking no drugging lots of fucking though and we'll get (laughs) into that later (laughs) and then the last number is it's not actually a number it is just several, which is the number of times that Gene Simmons has lit himself on fire while <laughs> doing his famous fire-breathing routine while playing uh, on stage, which I find to be hilarious and would be the highlight of any KISS show that you went to, I guarantee Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, we've touched on this a little bit. Let's talk about the band, KISS. They are comprised in this particular iteration there have always been basically four members but this particular iteration that appears on destroyer is four members gene the demon simmons on bass and vocals paul the star child stanley on guitar and vocals paul daniel ace freely also known as the spaceman and space ace who's on guitar and vocals and Peter the Catman Chris on drums and vocals. They all sing.
0: (laughs) It really sounds like you're introducing the WWF like All-Star Rumble. Yeah, we got to
3: just right off talk about the face paint, because I feel like normally on this show we talk about how... You can tell from how it's mixed who's the most powerful in the band. That tells you the power struggle within the band. I feel like this time the face paint really tells the story. Because Gene Simmons got by far the coolest face the paint. The coolest. And then it goes right from Demon right down to, to Street Mime. <laughs> down to like Off-Broadway Cirque du Soleil. And then the glass guy's got Cat Whiskers. Yeah, like, Kitty Cat. Oh, a
2: little cute Kitty Cat. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like there's not other face paint options they could have gone to. And they're like, well, I'm sorry, you're just stuck with cat. That's just it. We already got star and uh, devil wings. So, you know, you got to be cat. Yeah. We, we've run out of
0: shapes. Yeah. We did star and devil wings. I'm sorry, man. Cat's the next one. Can
2: I just get like circles over my eyes or something like that? Or like, how about a square? I'll just do a black square on my face, maybe? <laughs> you will get whiskers. <laughs> oh, man. So. Basically, uh, Kiss got their start with uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. They had been playing in a band in New York called Wicked Stanley, which is not a great name, but you know whatever; it's not terrible. Uh, and they had been playing around there in New York-based band. These guys are all kind of New York guys, and they got themselves a record deal with Epic Records. And they were pretty stoked about it. And Wicked Stanley, oh no, it's not Wicked Stanley, it's Wicked Lester. I don't know why I wrote Wicked Stanley. Wicked Lester,
1: less cool band name,
2: is definitely a less yeah, cool. Yeah, it just name. got a lot less cool. <laughs> so Wicked Lester, they get signed to Epic Records, and they go ahead and they record an album. And to give you an idea of how good this album is, after sinking the money into recording this album, Epic says, we're not fucking releasing this. We are not <laughs> going like how bad does your album have to be? They've already put the money into it and they're like, no, it's just not worth it. Like the the cost of printing this shit up would not we would not make our money back. Wow. And I listened to some of the Wicked Lester recordings. I don't know if you guys had the opportunity to listen to any of that. Good on you, Epic Records. You made the right choice. (laughs) That shit is terrible. Right business decision. It's not good. So eventually, it came
1: out. It sounds like.
2: Eventually, it came out. And actually, if you look up Wicked Lester on uh, Spotify, uh, they have a picture of the three members of the band, but most of the thumbnails just say "kiss." And it's just not Kiss, but they're just like – they. I think they re release them to take advantage of Kiss's popularity and try to make some money off of it, which if you like Kiss, especially this iteration of Kiss, you are not going to like Wicked Lester. They're not good. It sounds really shitty and down market.
3: Well, you, you, you talked about iterations a couple times. My understanding is that this is the classic primary lineup of Kiss. I mean, I have no doubt they sub people out later because of drug abuse or something, but this is – or are you referring to a stylistic change?
2: no it, well there is a stylistic change but it's not due to the lineup the lineup that is playing currently is cuz they are still playing is not this lineup peter chris left the band ace freely left the band they famously rejoined the band in the 90s for a huge reunion tour which made like hundreds of millions of dollars can't can't
0: imagine all of the All of the people so excited about a KISS reunion.
3: Well, because these guys can play a stadium in Buenos Aires, too, right? I mean, they're, they're truly worldwide, and I think a lot of it is the recognizability of their face paint.
2: Yeah, I knew all of the names of the members of KISS, and like you guys, I had not heard a single fucking note of KISS besides rock and roll all night and party every day. And think about that. Like, we're all musicians, and we managed to
0: somehow not hear Kiss, but still know, just through pop culture, and I guess musical references, who all the guys are. You're right, because as I look at their names, I know all their names. I didn't necessarily know who
3: played what, but definitely recognized the names. I mostly knew their names from that Weezer song, In the Garage, to be clear.
2: They only rap Ace Frehley and Peter Chris. You knew Paul Stanley, and you knew Gene Simmons already, definitely.
3: They're out there on the scene. Gene Simmons gives a lot of interviews, certainly, and even Paul Stanley to a lesser extent. So, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, they have an open feud,
1: you know, Ace Freely and Gene Simmons. I mean, they have got very, very public, you know. I mean, on the Howard Stern show alone, they would call in on different days and, you know, talk shit on each other. I mean, they hate each
2: other. I mean, how could you hate Gene Simmons? He seems like such a cool guy. <laughs> um.
3: Okay, but the point is they didn't really have many number one hits. Nope. Right, I didn't recognize really these songs. They sang, it sounded vaguely familiar, but it's just in the way that any old 70s rock radio single might sound familiar when I listen to this record.
2: Again, we talk about the marketing. They are masters of marketing. I'm going to give them a little bit of a Donald Trump stamp of approval here in that everybody knows their name, even if they don't like them. I love Radiohead. I can't name another guy besides Tom York and Radiohead. I don't particularly like Kiss. I know everybody in fucking Kiss. It's kind of ridiculous.
1: And didn't Kiss have like a cartoon... Like a oh, kid's yeah. cartoon yeah. and action figures. and well, They sell coffins. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> There's this comedian named Gary Gullman, and he talks about how much he loved MC Hammer and how MC Hammer, the, everybody in the audience laughs, but how he hit the trifecta. He had a breakfast cereal, a an action figure, and a Saturday morning cartoon show all at the same time. That takes a lot to do that, and I feel like
2: Kiss is probably in line with that. They didn't piss away all their money on crack and supporting their entire neighborhood, apparently. (laughs) Let's get to the actual formation, the nugget, the kernel of KISS, which is basically Wicked Lester breaks up, but... Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are like, "Hey, we want to keep playing some music together." They're on the scene they're auditioning drummers, and Peter Chris comes in and auditions with them a couple of times and ends up making this new making it into this new band that is at this point a three piece and they kind of decide we want to change our sound up a little bit. They were. Originally, kind of a little bit more of like a garagey, the Wicked Lester stuff is like a little bit more of like a garagey, almost distorted and shitty version of like a CCR or something like that. Like, it's not this kind of rock, it's not arena rock, certainly. And they decide they want to go into like a little bit more of a harder and more sinister direction than Wicked Lester has been. And you know, so they start playing around very shortly thereafter. Ace Freely joins the band on lead guitar, so now you got. A singer who plays rhythm guitar, you got a bass player who also sings, you got a lead guitar player who sings sometimes, and you got a drummer who also sings sometimes. They are hitting the New York scene, they're playing around, they're really trying to get noticed. And so, basically, January 1973, that is when the beginning of Kisses and they get assigned to a record deal in November of 1973. They're signed to Casablanca Records, they're actually the first act. Signed to Casablanca Records. It is a burgeoning label. They are super stoked. They hit the studio. They record their first album. They just call it Kiss. They release it in February of 1974. And it doesn't sell well at all. It sells like 75,000 copies. Totally a flop. They say fuck it. They get right back into the studio. They record Hotter Than Hell in October of 1974. Hotter Than Hell also sells like shit. Like, nobody buys it right off the charts.
0: At this point, are they, like, doing the full get-up? They're in the full thematic oh, outfit? Oh, yeah. There they okay. are. and they're still not hitting. Because I was thinking, it—it it is somewhat... I'm trying to think, in 1973, who else was doing anything this visual? Like, I know that Iron Maiden a big part of their act was just the craziness and the the giant devil behind the stage. And they hit in 75. So you're saying 73, they're gigging in New York.
3: Pink Floyd comes to mind in terms of a stage
0: show. Sure.
2: Well, in 73 was uh, the Ziggy Stardust era, right? That's a good point. Yeah,
3: yeah. All right, all right. I think Tom's about to tell us that even though they didn't sell records, they were developing a live following, though, right?
2: Yes. Well, Rob, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So... Basically, the first two albums are selling terribly, but they are out there on the road. They are playing around uh, constantly, also, but in, like, shit conditions. They said they were driving 13 hours in a station wagon between gigs and, you know, pissing on the side of the road, not staying in glamorous places. I think they said they were on $85 a week salary or something like that.
3: Quick question relevant to our own histories, Tom, is at what point... Leading up to the gig, do they apply the face paint? Is it in the bathroom, (laughs) at the bar, before they walk through the crowd of 10 people to get on stage?
2: I think it absolutely has to be. (laughs) You know, Rob and I have had the experience. We used to wear matching outfits in our band, The Chop. And it was always the worst because James would invariably, after we got the outfits on, be like i have to do something i have to go take a shit i have to go get a latte or something like that and then we're all just standing there like looking like dipshits like what the fuck because the <laughs> distinction
3: that i always said because these are places with no green rooms no backstage areas that's what of crappy clubs it's are. a door right so you're changing your clothes or getting ready for the stage in the bathroom or outside or something but there is a premise whereby you could look cool kiss looks cool with that makeup when they're on stage but when you're standing by the bathroom,
1: twiddling your thumbs,
3: you do not look cool. <laughs> you
1: do. Like when James is dressed up like Silver Surfer and painted entirely silver, you know? You can't really, exactly. can't really drive exactly. drive to the gig like that, you know? And
2: yet... Yeah, they're playing small clubs. They are putting on a good show, though, because... From the very beginning, they were very live show oriented. They get pulled off of the road though. Casablanca Records is basically saying, You are bankrupting us at this point. You are trying to put on these elaborate live shows that we are financing. You're getting no draw. Or like you're getting some draw, but you're not selling records. And this is still definitely at the time where like record sales was what was driving the, you know, is the engine of money making in the industry. And so after those first two albums sell terribly, they get pulled off of the road by Casablanca Records founder, this guy Neil Boggart, who was a former pop star. And they basically, he pulls them in and says, I need to record a different album with you. And we're going to change your sound up a bit. We're going to make it a little bit more poppy. We're going to make it a little bit more accessible. This is not going to be the doom Satan sound. We're going to try to make something that actually could get some radio airplay. And so they pull them in, and they record this album Dress to Kill. They get pulled off the road in like October or November of 74, and they then go and record Dress to Kill. It gets released in March of 1975, and on that album is Rock and Roll All Night and Party Every Day, which has become the signature song of the band, right? So they're on the road playing a whole bunch they get pulled off they say hey let's change your sound up a little bit they record their signature song they release their this album dress to kill and it sells like shit nobody buys it <laughs> again they are just they cannot replicate the live experience in a studio album so three
1: strikes at this point.
2: point three again bad how strikes many-
1: <laughs> who's believing in them at this point
2: well, I think Neil Boggart is like, I have basically gone all in on this bet. And so if, if this isn't going to happen, then like my, my record label is going to be bankrupt. <laughs> I
3: can kind of see it, though, because I th- and I'm sure this is going to be a theme. They seem like they would be a fun live act to see. I, I kind of get it, and I could get getting caught up in it. And so if you're the promoter who's seeing them live and going, these guys are awesome. The kids are really into it, so much energy, but it just doesn't translate.
2: Well, again, I think that that is – I'm going to go ahead and talk some shit on KISS at this point. I don't think they're that good <laughs> at their at their instruments. They're not great musicians. They're not certainly not putting anything out there that is unheard of before and crazy and that a million other people weren't doing better at the time just in terms of the actual musicianship. You well, know? especially
3: given the era. It was the era of virtuosity. They are yeah. definitely not
2: that. It's like ripping, shredding guitars and, you know— crazy bass work and crazy drums. It's like progressive rock shit going on, which was actually fucking popular. Oddly enough, like progressive rock was popular at the time. So they are basically kind of dead in the water. And as a sort of like hail Mary last ditch effort, they say, well, let's just release a live album. We have great audiences at our live shows. We're getting several thousand people to come see us play live why don't we just put out a live album? So they take recordings from three different shows in late 1975, and they splice them up into this album Alive, which is like their first album that actually has any kind of success. And let's talk a little bit about, we're going to take a step back, and we're going to talk about the mentality and the ethos of KISS leading up to this. If you watch interviews with them, if you watch interviews about them, The first thing anybody talks about is their live show. They do not talk about their records. They're not like, oh, you have to hear Destroyer. Destroyer's a great record. They say you have to see them live. That is the differentiator here. And they've said it many times. Their whole thing was they wanted to go and put on super elaborate live shows. They always said we wanted to make the band that we always wanted to see live and we never saw. They would be super pissed off when they went to a show And there was four guys on stage wearing jeans and their instruments, and that's it. Uh, Paul Stanley has said, like, you don't go to a grocery store and spend a bunch of money and they hand you an empty bag. That is what he referred to, like, just a (laughs) normal-ass 70s live rock show as.
3: It's not bad. yeah. It it is an issue of focus, though. And I do... I'll speak for myself. We love talking about our old band at Shop, but I was indirectly influenced by the KISS aesthetic, certainly, because I believe that, too. I believe the show should be a theatrical event, but it comes down to what you focus on. That means you're not focusing as much on playing your instrument accurately or writing top-notch songs or recruiting top-notch players.
2: Or even the the kind of songs that you are writing are meant to be experienced in a big crowd of people. And that is inherently going to inform a lot of the songwriting that you're going to do. It's going to inform what you're going to focus on. And, you know, give them credit. The version of Rock and Roll All Night that is the definitive version that actually got any cred and got any play and got covered later on and was the first one that had a guitar solo on it was the one from Alive. That's the definitive version of the song. They had recorded a studio version of it that everybody heard and said, I don't fucking care about this at all. And then they heard the live version of it, and they were like, oh, this is actually pretty great. And that album, Alive, goes gold. Not super quickly, but like relatively quickly, that album goes gold. And that's their first taste of success. They sell 500,000 copies, I think, within the first year of that being out. And that's like the biggest taste of success that they've ever had. And I also want to throw back to listening to a lot of interviews with these guys. Their number one thing is they're all just like, I don't want to have a job. <laughs> <They're> like <laughs> playing music is so great. Cause I don't have to have a fucking job. Having a job sucks. <laughs> I'm like preach brother. I fucking hear you on that one. But like,
0: <laughs> that's usually like third on, on most musicians lists, right? <laughs> The first one is, I have music in me. It must
3: get out. I like that they're just being upfront about it. It's like the homeless guy whose sign says, let's be real. I'm going to spend this on drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so, you know, they have this very elaborate live show. that includes fire breathing and set stage pieces and stuff like that, which is great. And it's super impressive. But it's the, it's the fucking Pink Floyd the Wall problem where it takes a lot of money. To maintain that show, you have to be selling out large arenas for that show to be a financial win for you. And up until this point, they were doing all that stuff, but they didn't have the level of crowd that they needed. They hadn't had that breakthrough. And then Live comes out, and they had that breakthrough. But it's still not international superstardom at this point. It's like you have a gold record, which is good. But it's not the you know crazy sales that one would expect for a band that is trying to maintain this huge apparatus around them. So they basically say, you know, we've been putting out this great live product. We finally got a gold album. And we're going to go back in the studio because everybody's anticipating our next album, which turns into 1976's Destroyer. They end up working with Bob Ezrin as the producer. And he also writes some of the songs on it, but he's, you know, he was working with like Alice Cooper and Lou Reed and like Aerosmith. He worked with Pink Floyd, Deep Purple. Like he actually produced a Fish album, apparently. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> yeah, another band known for their live performances and not for their uh, their studio albums. Doing that great.
3: Well, he produced the Wall, actually, right? With for Pink Floyd, so that's mm-hmm. an immediate callback to that.
2: Absolutely, to the yeah, to the the crazy fucking you know stage show. And Bob Ezrin comes in as a producer, and he's got some fucking opinions of what it should be. (laughs) You know, he's not just like, uh, "All right, where where do you want the knobs to be?" kind of producer. He's like producing an album for them, and he wants them to do an ambitious album. And you know, listen, we all listened to this album this week. Before you had any of the context on it, did this strike you as a particularly musically ambitious album?
3: (laughs) Dude, hell no. It's I yeah, mean you know. there are times when it sounds like a Broadway musical in the same way that The Wall does but imagine like working with a singer like Gene Simmons or even Paul Stanley versus a singer like Roger Waters who can belt those high notes it's quite a quite a distinction.
2: Yeah, I mean for the love of god we'll talk about the singing later but it's uneven to say the least. I think it would be very charitable to say that uneven singing is the the thing that this suffers from the most. So They're writing these more ambitious songs, but they still have – they still stick to their roots. Marty, you basically nailed it earlier when it's like all the songs are about partying and fucking, and that's basically it. That's like – that's their entire wheelhouse. It's like we want to have a party and then have sex afterwards, and that's awesome.
3: (laughs) Well, that's what's so funny because in these interviews with Bob Ezrin or talking about Bob, they kept talking about how he's this great producer who brought out all this quality, and they kept referring to those songs you're talking about as suck me, fuck me songs – Like he was drawing the band away from those. I was like, what? How bad was it before?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it might have been pretty bad. I, I saw an interview. With it was from like the mid-90s with Gene Simmons, not in makeup. And he's being interviewed at like a table in an establishment by this guy. And I'm not gonna say it's a strip club, but I certainly can can't not say it's a strip club. Like it very well might have been a strip club. And like he's just talking to this guy, and this girl in a bikini walks by, and Gene Simmons is like 57 years old at this point or something, and he's just like, hey, come on over here, sweetheart. And he just has this. 19-year-old girl in a bikini just sit on his lap for the rest of the interview, and she's really uncomfortable the whole time, but he's got his arm like around her waist not letting her go. And I was like, damn, Gene, you are a creepy motherfucker. Well, they were all in their
0: 20s when this album was cut, I think. I saw that Gene Simmons was like maybe 26, 28, but they all sound like a bunch of predatory 45-year-old wannabes. Like, it's just... (laughs) The way the songs are written... I can't imagine myself at that age being that maybe overt or just—it seems a little desperate. I don't know. Maybe this is just me not being, you know, having hundreds of millions of dollars and being kissed. But,
2: but they didn't have hundred hundreds of millions of dollars at this time.
3: At this point, you're right. Okay. I think delusions of grandiosity are—that's kind of their brand, though, from day one, right?
2: Yes, and in a way that is almost comical, like it's almost it's a put on where they're just like you know, their whole thing is like we got the biggest dicks and we got the best songs and we got the best ladies. We throw the best parties and like it's a shtick. Certainly, is it? But (laughs) they've also been road dogs. They've been road dogs for like four years. (laughs) I listen. Gene Simmons might be hanging hog. I don't know. But
3: he's definitely hanging
0: tug. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> there was some line in here because this, they are contemporaries of Aerosmith, right? And they deliver some line in here where he says something about seven inch, and then it goes on to that it's not, you know, his dick, but it's seven inch. Yeah. And that was like his brag line. And then you go to Steven Tyler, who's got my big 10 inch record. And that just, it comes off so much better and so much cooler. Yeah, when that Stephen might seven-inch high heels. Right. <laughs> just yeah, what yeah that's what about. it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that what
2: yeah, it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right,
3: right. <laughs> I once heard the guy, the original drummer from Guns N' Roses, talking about Steve T- Steven Tyler's hog, and he kept calling it a rig.
2: Talking about how <laughs> a huge it was. Rig, oh yeah, that's, <laughs> a, that's appropriate. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, you know, like Gene Simmons, I think it was like twenty seven or something when this album came out. But they talk about with like stand up comics a lot of times, like they're just staying in hotels on the road, and they don't have a whole lot of other connections, and they're just meeting new people every night, and they're just horn dog bastards who are, just, and they are kind of getting late every night because they're the center of attention. Everybody came to see them. It's got to be the same thing for if you've been a band yeah. on the road for like four plus years, and you're actually playing, you know, to. Crowds that are super into it, they probably were having a lot of sex. Gene Simmons certainly claims that he has had a lot of sex in his life. <laughs> so Destroyer, highly anticipated, they just had this huge live album and was like, oh, this is the kiss sound we've been looking for. Let's, let's see what this next album holds in store for us. And they released Destroyer, and it does pretty good right away because it's very highly anticipated, but it does not have staying power. Falls off the charts right away. And basically, everybody bought it at first, and they were like, oh, this kind of sucks. <laughs> they had basically the same problem that they've had before of an initial burst of excitement and then very quickly fell off until—and this is the thing that I don't—I still can't wrap my fucking head around. They release Detroit Rock City as their debut single, and they put on the B-side, Beth. And the reason they put Beth on the B-side, Gene Simmons has said, is because they wanted to make sure that Detroit Rock City was going to get played. So they picked a very weak song to put on the B-side. And then Beth starts getting radio airplay. And Beth, which I didn't even put on our focus list because I hadn't done the research before. And I was like, well, this clearly is the shittiest song on the album. (laughs) Beth all of a sudden starts going crazy and getting requested what? to be played on radio across the country and becomes the number, uh, number seven single, their first top ten single. is one of their best performing songs ever is the song Beth, which, again, is not on our focus list, but let's drop in a little bit of Beth right now.
3: Playing, and we just can't find a sound. Just
1: a few more hours, and I'll be right home to you. I think I hear the calling. Oh, Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I do?
2: Okay, so this is a song that was written and sung. By their drummer, Catman, Peter Chris.
3: That's my favorite part. That must have been such a boosh to
2: Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. How is this a recipe for success? I don't understand it. And somehow Beth becomes a huge selling song. And by November of 1976, again, it was released in March. So March to November, Destroyer goes fucking platinum. Which what the fuck it sells a million copies upon the strength of beth i don't understand it
0: i mean that right there almost it's a you're in guys right there just for that little story you're
2: in (laughs) if you want to trace back why kiss is kiss and able to sell out stadiums in buenos aires it's fucking beth beth is what did it for them (laughs) Basically, every album that they released after that went platinum almost immediately. Their next 3 albums went platinum like within the first 6 months of being released again. All and they're not good albums. It's all based upon the strength of Beth. I don't understand it. That's wild, man. Let's get into some songs. Good lord. Please. So, everybody, by the way, keep Beth in the back of your head as we are now dissecting the songs that are on our focus list here. We're going to jump into, the again, the first single that was released from this album, the one that Beth was a B-side on because they were trying to get this one played. Let's get a little bit more of
0: Detroit Rock City.
1: I really like this song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know what I like about it? It's a good first song on an album. It opens with a radio, you know, playing and a guy telling a story about a youth that was killed in a car crash, a head-on collision, and the driver of the other car survives with no injuries. And then you hear key- keys jangling, a car door open, you know, the motor's revving and then it goes into the kind of what happened leading up to this accident that night. And so it's kind of a, a creative approach to, a, to songwriting. Uh, my second point about this song is it made me start thinking about songs about cities. And how you kind of get into this like Detroit mindset when you listen to this song in the same way, you know, if you listen to like Dear Chicago by Ryan Adams or New York State of Mind by Billy Joel or Baltimore by Randy Newman or virtually any Bruce Springsteen song, you kind of get a feeling of the place that they're singing about. And so that to me also is is a cool feature of this song.
2: Kind of like uh, that song, I Love L.A., I think the David Lee Roth solo song. There's a
1: million of them,
0: yeah. It's another Randy Newman. Okay.
2: One of my favorite little tidbits that I found in researching this week, did you know that Gene Simmons discovered Van Halen and actually signed Van Halen? To a uh, a deal, and they recorded some demos with him, but he was like, "I'm too fucking busy with all my touring and shit. I can't, I can't be the guy." And releases Van Halen to then go on and and this is like early eighties. Eddie Van Halen auditioned to be in Kiss in nineteen eighty two. Damn!
3: Wait a minute! Wait a minute! No, the first Van Halen record came out in the late seventies. Yeah,
2: it? he auditioned to be in Kiss when um, Ace freely left. Eddie Van Halen auditioned to be in Kiss.
3: That isn't that's ridiculous. Yeah.
2: Gene Simmons' like walked away from like I mean again, he's already got hundreds of millions of dollars, but like if you could have just sat back and taken that Van Halen money for the rest of your life, Jesus
3: Christ. Ooh. Gene, you get an EVH in your band, but I have one request. I get to take over the cat makeup. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I kind of agree with Marty. I think this is not a great song, but it's like almost really good for me. That said. What it actually is pretty middle of the road seventies, but it's it's their lane. They're doing a good job. I have no idea. I disagree with Marty. I don't think it was a good idea to start with a ninety second skit. That's <laughs> way overkill. But I would just say that the song itself is is pretty in the pocket of AM radio seventies hits. Like it could be a lot of bands, in my opinion, but it's executed. Pretty well. It's kind of got Radar Love vibes, in my opinion. Okay,
2: but think about, for a second, think about the song Radar Love, and think about this song. What does Radar Love have that this song does not have? A, a throbbing bass. bass.
3: Throbbing <laughs> fucking,
2: where's the this bass? Some,
3: well, this is the one time I noticed the bass on the record, because he does the little <laughs> yeah. Run. Yeah. yeah. But it's real sharp, to your point. It doesn't really have a lot of low end to it. And I think even that is like a riff on the Freddie's Dead, the Curtis Mayfield bass line, is that right? No, I
2: don't know. Uh, maybe.
3: I think it's like a sped-up version of the Freddy's Dead
2: okay. kind of melody slash bass line. Definitely yeah. played with a pick because Gene Simmons is a dickhead and has claimed <laughs> on many occasions that people who play without a pick are stupid. You can't hear them and shit. And I was like, that. honestly, that quote was in my head the entire time because Gene Simmons very famously said, hey, to all those studio musicians who play with a pick, we can't hear you live on stage. And I was like, I can't hear you in the fucking studio when you're playing with a pick, man. Like, what What the fuck are you doing? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I said that the singing in this one was in kind of knockoff foreigner territory, which is actually where I wished more of the singing was on this record. So this set a tone that was not replicated, because then I thought, I think this is Paul Stanley singing, I thought he kind of had a voice, and then he was really uneven, as is Gene Simmons throughout a lot of the other tracks, and it was very disappointing.
2: Yeah, uneven is definitely the way I would approach it, because...
3: And to be clear, knockoff foreigner was a compliment to Kiss.
2: I had this as watered down Thin Lizzy, also a compliment to Kiss. Because I, again, this <laughs> yeah. song is not bad. It is definitely in their lane. It's not necessarily party music. Apparently, Paul Stanley wrote this about a guy who left a Kiss show in Charlotte, North Carolina, and was killed in an accident. So, didn't even happen in Detroit.
3: I have a a quick bone to pick though about the production of this song is that in talking, like the oral history of making this record, they kept referring to that instrumental harmonized guitar passage, the Thin Lizzy passage, as the guitar solo. And they're like, what a crazy guitar solo. Man, when do you have people at the concert humming along to a guitar solo? That never happens. It's not a guitar solo. It's a little it's a passage.
2: passage. <laughs> it's a noodle. It's harmonized. Therefore, it's not a solo. <laughs>
3: exactly.
2: I feel like they had a vibe on this song that if they really dug into it, I could have appreciated. Again, I mixing problems. And I think it's probably their lifelong struggle to capture their live essence in the recording studio. Maybe they were not in the makeup and they should have been in the makeup and the seven-inch heels. Like, you know. <laughs>
3: This one sounds a lot better in my opinion on a live too, which is where the songs from this record, their follow- up to that other live record that came out sometime after this that has some of these songs on it. sounds way better in my opinion. More energy, more live, yeah, more live energy, obviously.
0: I just felt like everything was compressed into like a box. And I kind of I have like a milestone marker in my head, which is Frankenstein, 1972. And I listened to that kind of as like an AB and Frankenstein breathes a lot more. Much better use of stereo, and you can feel the placement. It's like they took everything and crammed it into a box, and nothing could escape that box. It's almost like they just kind of like put one mic into a shoebox, and the band was in there, and that's what you got.
2: You know, I will say this. I think that a lot of the issues that they encounter on this album are indicative of what Rob said before. It's their focus. I think they were dashing off studio albums, and they were not doing a deep dive intensive mix session but i think that their live stuff i think that they are very concerned about how they sound live and i think that gene simmons when they play live it's like give me some more fucking bass i can't hear the bass we got to get more bass in here and i think that they record these these studio albums and then they just get right back out there on the road and they're basically like yeah just do what you want with it and then release it i mean their discography. They put out two albums in 1974, one album in 1975, two albums in 1976, and then an album in mid 1977. Like, that's a lot of studio albums that they're cranking out.
1: It's kind of like the Grateful Dead, you know, similar. Their studio albums are kind of like poorly mixed with their live shows or what people listen to almost entirely.
3: Wait a minute. I don't think I agree with that. I've think <laughs> there's a few of those Grateful Dead studio albums that are very well mixed in my uh, opinion. Yeah.
2: I think that you might it might be more accurate and this is one of the few times that I would say that these two bands are analogous is it's more like Fish in that like their studio albums are just a vehicle for live material that they right. can play. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I kind of hear that, but I still don't think that's quite what's going on. I think it's more like what you described, Tom, that they just didn't, the band probably didn't put a ton of thought into the studio experience. Whereas I don't feel like that's the case for The Grateful Dead or Fish. even though I agree they're more known for their live shows and their live experimentation. I get that aspect of it. But this doesn't feel like there was a lot of care put into it compared to what it,
2: the energy that's in the live show. And it's funny because... On Spotify, which is where I've been listening to these, there are two versions of Destroyer, but they're both remixes. And even the remixes sound hollow and not that great. And I think it's, you know, again, it has to do with probably the source material that they were working with. But, yeah, this is one of those songs where I I dig the song. I don't dig this presentation of the song. Agreed.
0: Last thought, go back and listen to this song. You got the intro thing. Eventually, the music comes in. Now look at the album cover.
1: Yeah, 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 That moment is them jumping yeah. off, and that's all I could
0: get. I yeah. couldn't get that out of my head. Every time I listen to this, i picturing them like kick, like a big flying kick
1: with their instruments. <laughs> that album
3: cover is pretty good. It looks like Captain Planet. It looks, you know, or, like the, or like
1: the Wizard
2: of Oz or
1: something. You
3: know, right. That's you know, think I actually, it's awesome. That is, that is what it's a reference to. That's a good call.
2: I don't think for that. Oh, my God. You're right. It is, it is fucking cheesetastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's go on to... The next song on our focus list, and we could talk more about why I put this on here, but you'll probably understand, listeners, if you've never heard the album before, when this one comes on, Great Expectations.
0: drives you wild
1: can do and you
0: wish you were the one I was doing
2: I definitely was not expecting to hear a fucking glockenspiel on this kiss album <laughs> that's that, that's
1: that's my note too
2: is nice use of glockenspiel it's, it's kind of nice yeah they, uh, what
3: kills me is that they actually thought they were making stairway to heaven with this like i, I can oh tell God. from hearing interviews and this is about as good as a hard rock song named after a charles dickens novel could be expected to be <laughs> it's to me this is I have a hard time choosing the low point, but this is one of the two that's in contention. I mean,
1: it's like, it's like disgusting lyrically. Disgusting. And, and and the, and the idea that like it, like a woman's watching like some guy in a clown outfit with, with a you know, cat eye makeup and be like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, baby. Like, oh, give it to me. Uh-huh. You know, you're so yeah. hot, you fucking douche. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> wait, wait, I, one of my favorite quotes that I heard the producer say was that in this song, one of the melodies is lifted directly from a Beethoven piece. Like, <laughs> and he said about that, I didn't think Beethoven in mind. I felt like be- if Beethoven were alive, he would have loved Gene Simmons. So I figured it was okay. <laughs> oh, <God>. Good. <laughs> like, how Lord. delusional do you have to be?
0: Seriously. In my adult life, I feel like the only time I ever hear anyone talk about expectations, it's because they're preparing you for disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) I think these guys really know what's about to happen.
2: It is possible that it's tongue-in-cheek and they're, like, describing the experience that all these groupies have where they're, like, they see you on stage and, like, oh, I bet you fuck like a monster. And you're, like, I'm actually, like, a five six awkward Jewish guy. Uh, with so one ear. <laughs> with yeah. one yeah, ear. With yeah. one yeah. ear. I so think work. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Which we didn't talk about this at the, at the beginning, but this is one of the funnier things is that everybody has seen the KISS logo, the KI, and then the two S lightning bolts. Apparently. Like <laughs> yeah. That was banned in Germany in right. the 1970s oh, because you can't have anything that evokes nazism. And so that was a big controversy and Gene Simmons has basically said like, "Hey, like Kiss is 50% Jewish."
3: Right. <laughs> I think he I think literally like his grandparents escaped the concentration camps or something, right?
2: He was born in Israel. His name is Chaim Witz, and uh, Paul Stanley's <laughs> wow. real name is Stanley Burt Eisen. Like, they are very yeah. Jewish, and yeah. like the ridiculousness of that controversy. But apparently, Ace Freely was the guy who designed the logo, and just had seen an old Wicked Lester poster that had, and Wicked Lester had a lightning ball for the S, and so he was writing over that poster, because they were actually playing there, and it wasn't Wicked Lester, it was Kiss, and the poster was wrong, and so he kind of wrote kiss over it and used the two lightning bolts, and, but then had to release a statement where he said, I just want to go on record that I don't believe in Hitler or his ideology or anything he stood for. <laughs> that I'm not a Nazi. And this, oh.
3: finally, is where they diverge from Donald Trump.
2: Damn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah Hitler stand back and stand by. Uh, <laughs> right. Oh, man. Yeah, so I found that to be fucking hilarious.
1: I have one more thing to say about this song, and it's that they do this in almost every single song remaining in our selection, is that they take the title of the song and they just say it over and over and over and over again for the last like minute of every
2: song. It's actually 90 seconds for this song. I fucking counted it. The last 90 seconds of the song. And it's, the last 90 seconds of the song is just the chorus. But the chorus is just one line. You've got great expectations. It's the whole chorus. And they just do that again and again and again and again. I do have to
0: throw a little bit of love at this song. So, of all of the songs on this album, this is the one chorus that has been repeating in my head when I'm in the shower, what? and I can't get rid of it. I don't understand. <laughs> well, how is,
3: first of all, how has Adam not mentioned the singing yet? The singing on this is atrocious, it's
0: terrible. <laughs> yeah, their voices are surprisingly bad. That was one thing I didn't. I I know I mentioned in, in earlier that this was exactly what I expected. I little off there i was expecting some type of vocal capability from anybody But this is paul
3: stanley again right he sings detroit rock city too and he sounds pretty good on that and then here he sounds terrible like how did they like tom and i were in the studio yesterday doing vocal takes and if you're even a little bit off the engineer doesn't know us from from adam really slash the other guys in the room Shouldn't they let you know that you need to try it again? Uh,
2: this is Gene Simmons on lead vocals, by the way. Oh, my God. Which know. explains a lot, because Gene Simmons can't fucking sing. He's okay. like, all attitude, no ability. But never you fear, just in case it escaped you that he <laughs> yes. can't sing, they contrast it with a fucking choir in the background. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Why? Yes. Why so,
3: would you do that? So I got to say, too, you didn't put God of Thunder on the oh, focus God, this is so bad. <laughs> but actually... When I listened to it in the when I listened to the live version alive too, I actually liked that song the best. Like I, I just wanted another band to be playing that song, and I would like it as a hard rock song, is how I felt. But once I got this idea in my head, I could not get it out. If you listen to the Destroyer version of God of Thunder, and you think about Seth Rogan singing <laughs> the lead vocals.
2: <laughs>
3: that's what it sounds like
2: <laughs> yeah. oh man uh, let's go on to the next song on our focus list here we're going to talk about the song Sweet Pain oh great I, my note was they should have just called the song My Big Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for the longest time that's what they're talking about. I think they're actually talking about bondage, but... Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: that's what I thought as well.
2: It's, you know, it's like, what do they call it? Uh, Le petite Mort, the, the little death. That's what the French call an orgasm. And that's basically what they're talking about.
3: <laughs> I thought this was a perfectly serviceable but forgettable 70s radio single. Like... And actually, I think this represents a new mode for the band. And one of the other songs we're going to talk about has, is in the same modality, which is when they get those harmonies going on the chorus, I actually think they're arranged quite nicely. That That is a good vocal sound for them. It sounds very 70s. It does blend in a lot with other singles from that era, in my opinion. And so there's nothing particularly to distinguish this. Also, did you notice, I imagine you just played the opening of the song, that Gene Simmons just lets out a weird groan. On the track, right at the beginning,
2: (sighs) yeah, that's he's such a perv, he really is such a perv, it's kind of incredible. You know, he has basically one topic that he will write about, right? Great Expectations was written by Gene Simmons, Sweet Pain was written by Gene Simmons. I'm talking about just the songs that are like just Gene Simmons songs. That's it, those are the only two songs that were written by just Gene Simmons. And both of them are like fucking pervious shit. There's a moment at the one minute mark where he says, "Anyhow,
0: anyhow," and it's really rough. There are a couple moments across this album where it sounds like they're channeling Muppets. This was like the first one that I that I written down was just a very odd delivery. So.
2: The version that is available on Spotify, which is the one that we were listening to, the Destroyer Resurrected remix. I don't think...
3: Was that the one we were listening
2: to? I'm pretty sure that was the one we were listening to.
3: I couldn't really tell a lot of difference, to be honest, because during the week, I was listening to Not Resurrected, because that's my understanding is that was a remix, And then, but I'm not sure what you put on the focus list.
2: Okay, well, but on the Resurrected remix... They have a guitar solo by Ace Frehley, but the original release had a guitar solo by Dick Wagner, who was a guy who appears on a couple of songs on this album, Uh, and apparently Ace Frehley just couldn't cut it on the solo for this song. Oh, jeez. Which, you know, you can't have a lot of confidence in yourself or you're playing if you're doing that. And, like, Marty, you were talking about how your friend was, like, a sound guy for them, and, like, apparently they don't play live, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, they play maybe live with their you know, things turned down all the way. (laughs) But it's funny because they were on the Howard Stern show about, I think, three weeks ago and played live without backing tracks, just them playing their instruments. And they played about two minutes of a song, stopped, and started over from the beginning and played it again. Not after, like five seconds it was after like the song was well into it that they was like no 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 stop stop
2: stop what did this like miss the bridge or something just fucking roll with it you've been playing live music for yeah, 35 fucking years, right, years right, right, right how long yeah. have
1: you been playing these tunes yeah
0: good lord or not or, or, pretending or like to pretend or like what was the last
1: yeah. time they actually sat in a room together and jammed probably like it probably never happened they yeah. probably fly to their mansion in beverly hills you know and then fly back to, you know, wherever, you know, stadium after every gig, you know.
2: I saw a documentary about Carol Kay, that bass player from The Wrecking Crew. She's a wicked bass player. Super good. And Gene Simmons is, like, talking to her while she's – and they're talking about bass. And she's doing this, like – Pretty goddamn simple. It's basically like skipping over a string while she's picking on a uh, on a descend line with like the root is on the A string and the descend line is like on the G string and she's just like picking back and forth. And Gene Simmons is like, oh, that's pretty, cra- that's pretty cool. That's pretty crazy. Like, look, look at that. I was like, dude, Gene, that's fucking easy. That's not hard at all. Like, I don't know. I'm not trying to talk shit on you as a bass player, but the fact that you saw her do something that any second year music student who doesn't even focus on the bass. I would imagine if you're like a jazz guitar player and you were given the bass and you were given 25 minutes, you'd be like, oh, that's this right here. Yeah, I can just do that right now. And Gene Simmons has been playing bass for fucking 40
1: years. That's so funny. Did Did Kiss popularize like the weird shape, like the Flying V and the Gibson Explorer, those weird shaped Guitars and basses that are probably really uncomfortable to play, but look really cool on stage. I don't
2: know. He had the axe bass, right? He had the ace that had the, the, okay. the bass had like an axe head for the bottom. I, yeah. I don't know if they popularized yeah, right, them or not. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that they're not that popular anymore. Although it is funny sometimes to see people playing a flying V in like a fucking indie rock shoegaze band or something like that.
3: Apparently, the Flying V first came out in 1958, and men like Albert King
1: helped popularize it. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay
2: all righty let's jump into the next song on our focus list here we are going to talk about shout it out loud
3: is the best song i'm just gonna say that objectively
2: i was driving in the car with uh my wife and i was listening to destroyer and this song came on and she said something and i'm I'm still trying to determine if it was a diss or not she said this sounds like a song they would teach you in kindergarten
0: (laughs) (laughs) shout it out loud at
2: first i was like oh that's such a diss and i was like no that's it's an earworm it gets in there like this is paul stanley really singing like he's really doing a great job on this and i think that overall i would like to have heard a lot more of this style of song on the album
3: yeah this is great this also kind of sounds like other 70s hits but i think the harmonies are really nice and this is the one it made me feel like if this was a b-side on bachman turner overdrives let it ride <laughs> if that's what you if you just presented it to me like that i'd be like yeah that makes sense that
2: yeah i totally buy that <laughs> <laughs> totally although there is at exactly the two-minute mark. They're doing the, shout it out loud, and Gene Simmons comes in, you got to have a party.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And my note on that was it sounds
2: like your aggressive uncle trying to push you into having a party while your parents are away so we can hit on high school girls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Your uncle is also Gene Simmons.
2: That totally ties out. But the song's two minutes and 50 seconds long. Tight pop song. This is yeah. what... Yeah, and I get out. Yeah.
3: I also just feel like this is the one that... It felt like they best used the magic of the studio to create a studio track. The other ones, like I said, as far as I could tell, they felt like they lacked energy, they lacked performance, and the live versions I heard kind of made up for that. This one, they sounded pretty good. This is also on a live, too. It sounds pretty good, but I just think this is a good example of them using the studio for what it's intended for.
0: Yeah, they added a piano in the run down at the the 48 second mark on the chorus you can hear that they add in like you know octave notes on a piano to kind of you know make it a little beefier which is a pretty cool pretty cool
1: sound i I like this one too this and and detroit similar vibes yeah i was gonna say something about this you know we talked about van halen earlier maybe it's the way they do the harmonies kind of reminded me of like jump or just kind of a an old van halen song and they do they do the harmonies but they're not are they harmonies are they all just singing like the same thing at the same time. you know. And I think a lot of 80s bands did that because they didn't know how to sing harmonies. So that might be what's happening here. Definitely a high line. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of guys singing the same thing, and then they dubbed in one guy singing one note over the top, which it sounds chunky and full. This song also was on an episode of Glee, which totally makes sense. This is purpose-made for... It it gets back to that whole, like, they're kind of like a broadway show it's kind of show tune shit you know like this is in that vein of like the show tune song that if you're in the crowd and they're all in the makeup and gene simmons is spitting fire which apparently gene simmons is a world-renowned fire spitter he can spit fire up to 15 feet which is not like a world record but it's like elite level fire breather so if they're doing all that shit on stage and they're singing shouted out loud i'd be fucking into it this I'd be totally into this shit.
3: <laughs> sure. Same here.
2: Yeah, low key banger. That was that was my my first note on this one. Low key banger. Now we're gonna jump into the last song on our focus list, which I think we're gonna have a bit of a different opinion on. <laughs> the song, "Do You Love Me."
1: I, I have nothing to say about this song.
2: <laughs>
1: just All I can say is it's just—it I mean, was just so godawfully repetitive.
3: I just think the singing—the singing right from the top—is so off. I cannot believe they let this stand and release. Really, the first thirty seconds sounds like your teenager's shitty garage band playing in the garage.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like delivered with this like sneering attitude that does not translate well. It doesn't come off well. Nobody comes off well in the song. The song is terribly sung. It is another one of those, like like Marty, you said, you've got a title and you just say it 40 fucking times in the course of the song. It's like, come on, man.
3: I do think it's a low point, but now a compliment. The bridge is actually pretty good, mostly because it sounds like a
2: completely different song. Yes, I like the bridge on the song. Another thing I like is this song has low end. This song actually is mixed well. It has some bass in it. It's got some low end to it. It doesn't sound like hollow and like they just completely scooped out all the bass tones on this shit. It's 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 okay. I wish that they'd given this mixing treatment to a lot of the other better produced songs on the album. We need some bells.
3: (laughs) I just don't (laughs) understand that decision. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I wrote that the wedding bells in Dakota represent everything that's wrong with this production—a bloated sense of self-importance mixed with Hallmark movie schmaltz.
2: I honestly, I think that they were just like, "How much money can we possibly spend to make this album? Like, is there any way we can bloat this budget a little bit more?" Well, I think that's going to about wrap it up for our deep dives on the album now we are going to get into the part that I'm sure has you all in suspense. And actually, if I'm being honest, has me in suspense as well. Is this an album that you must hear before you die? Give it to me, Adam.
0: I mean, I've played with guitar players slightly older than me who looked up to these guys who started their musical careers listening to Kiss and wanting to get into bands. And while I don't think these guys are that good, I appreciate what they do. I appreciate it that they started off gigging in shitty clubs and did it for four years and worked their way up from the bottom. And just for the sheer fact that they are such a a powerhouse in
2: in pop culture, I'm going to say, yeah, give it a listen. All righty. That's a surprise yes vote from Adam. Let's kick it on over to Marty.
1: So, you know, similar to Adam, I can appreciate – a good live band, and, and a good performance. And I, I realize that every band you know, can't get in the studio and make hit albums, but can go on stage and deliver an electric performance. And with that said, this is about the album and not about the live show. So I'm going to say no, they're, they're a no for me. Uh, this is not on my list of, of top 5,000 albums.
2: Wow. You know what? Honestly, the exact opposite of those two votes. I thought I was going to get a yes from Marty and a no from Adam. Let's hear it from you, Rob.
3: <laughs> yeah, there was an anecdote where Gene Simmons said that one point during the recording session, Bob Ezrin stopped everyone from recording and said, Okay, it's time to learn how to tune your instruments properly. <laughs> oh my God. I Can think I take my that vote says back? A lot. No. <laughs> I think, no, listen, I really enjoyed, I did enjoy listening to it this week. I think there are some highlights, there's some lowlights, and I enjoyed learning about Kiss's journey. And I do think they're an important band. I get it. So but sorry Kiss Army. This studio recording I don't think is doing a good job of representing them. And thus I do not even though it's the record that broke them, so I don't think you have to listen to it, I would recommend going and listening to some of the live material and maybe accessing them that way. But to me this album is inessential even though they may be an essential band in the canon
2: all righty you know i struggled a lot with what i was going to vote on this one and the entire reason i struggled with it is because this is the only kiss album on the list and i think that you have to listen to kiss at some point in your life i they're so ubiquitous everybody knows kiss you have to listen to some kiss Because if you're like me, I'm a music fan. I'm a 70s music fan, and I hadn't heard shit from Kiss. But this isn't the album for it. This is just not the one. I get it. I know that Dimebury had an aversion to putting live albums on his list, and he was much more of a studio album guy. But listen to a live or a live 2. Don't listen to this album. It is, unfortunately, a poor representation of... What they can bring to the table. And so they're getting to no. know. And I'm sorry, Kiss, you guys are one for three on here. With Adam is the only yes vote. Oh, what the fuck?
3: Adam loves being the odd man out. <laughs> really Wait, hold on, just to correct you real quick. <laughs> live at the Apollo by James Brown. Live at Harlem Square Club by Sam Cook. Live at the Regal by B.B. King. I could go on. There are many live records on this list. I think Diamry just didn't pay that close attention to what he was doing with Kiss.
2: I I think that generally speaking when he chooses a live album it is because the artist that has a live album on the list does not necessarily have a studio album that was created to be an album as a package. They have a collection of singles thrown together as an album. And so for like guy like Sam Cooke Yeah, I think Live at the Harlem Square Club represents Sam Cooke more than a collection of disparately recorded singles thrown together and packaged to make money versus, like, a cohesive vision. That's my take on it. I could be wrong. DiMarie... You hit me up. You can hit me up on my personal cell.
3: See, Finn Lizzie's Live and Dangerous is on the list, but Jailbreak is not.
2: Okay, well that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he probably has something against the Irish, I don't know, being a being a Brit. Um Maybe
3: so. Maybe so.
2: Anyway, so not on the list. I am sorry, Kiss. Uh, I'm sure you'll just have to, you know, cry yourself to sleep on your gigantic piles of money. <laughs> All that is left for us to do, dear listeners. And I want to again thank you for sticking around with us for this long. If you like what we're doing, you can drop us an email 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. 1001 album complaints at gmail. Let us know if we missed some contacts, got something wrong, you agree with us, disagree with us. We'd love to hear from you. We read them all. And If it provides us with some new information that gives some more context, we'll we'll read it on the air and let everybody know where we fucked up or where we got something right or got something wrong. If you want to do the best possible thing for us, you can share this podcast with a friend. You can go and rate and review us. It just takes a couple of seconds. Give us five stars. Write a little thing that says, hey, these guys are interesting or these guys are morons, but they're charmingly stupid. We'll take that. Now... I am going to bust out the Albinator 5000, and we are going to find out what our homework assignment is for next week. Oh, good Lord. I had to wake it up from a Bacchanal uh, scene where it's just got coke all over it, and it's surrounded by a bunch of barely legal women that are uh, laying about with uh, white makeup on various parts of their body smeared there. And we are going to crank that bad boy and see what we'll be listening to next week. So, without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to the album is "Drunk." So, you got me already, <laughs> by the artist Thundercat, <laughs> Thundercat, which is an interesting one here. Is that is that I, newer? That's that yeah. is definitely new. Yeah, okay. yeah, I kind of thought it was... this is probably one of those uh, vision additions to the right. list. Post yeah. 2010,
0: I'm guessing. Oh yeah, this is like last five. Oh years. nice. All right.
2: Yeah. Well, so that's that's an interesting one. Very much looking forward to that. I mean, he is just a bass monster. So
3: I think bass monster is a very apt description of him. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes. That'll be very interesting. That will be very interesting. Looking forward to that one. So listen to the album Drunk by Thundercat for next week. As always, thank you very much for listening to us all the way to the bitter end here.
3: There's a little unintentional tie-in, Tom, because Gene Simmons kind of, his face paint kind of looks like Lionel
1: from Thundercat. Oh, there you go. Sword of
3: Omens.
2: Give me sight beyond sight. Wow, Adam's deep in the lore. I didn't expect that. Yeah, man. <laughs> all righty. Before we right. nerd out any more... So- <laughs> <laughs> After an hour and a half of her nerding out For 1001 Album Complaints I have been Tom I'm Adam
1: I'm Marty
3: And I'm Rob
2: Boosh, boosh, boosh